for the next two weeks, we're going to step into, we're going to step into the post-election hangover. <laughs> and, and here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I, I want to be nuanced. This is not going to be two weeks on a Christian's civic duty, although that's really important. This is not going to be two weeks on how do you evaluate different candidates and issues to vote as a Christian, although those are things that matter. Those are things that are important. This is going to be two weeks to wrestle through just how shallow discipleship tends to be in the church and how that results in the people of God not bringing peaceful presence to the world that we live in. See, the priestly role of the church is to be in some real ways, because we have the Holy Spirit, it's to be the real presence of Jesus in the world in which we live. And what's happening in the church right now, which is really a tragedy, is we're substituting deep discipleship that connects heads and souls with the truth of the gospel. We're substituting that for bigger and cooler buildings, for bigger and better crowds, for more witty and better marketed sermons, and for more and more technology. And here's what's amazing. There's never been a moment in the 2,000-year history of the church where there was this much information, data, and technology on being a Christian. Like, there's more available at your fingertips as a disciple of Jesus. There's more books There are more podcasts, there are more articles and blogs on top of blogs and blogs engaging blogs and blogs engaging counter blogs on blogs being engaged. Like there is more, there is more stuff out there for you to consume as a Christian than there's ever been in the history of the church. And yet, and yet, are we really bringing the peaceful presence of Christ to the world in which we live? Are we really experiencing deep transformation where the truth of who God is, is being connected, not just with our heads, like we're heads on sticks that are just sort of supercomputers between our ears that just need data, but is that information moving from our heads, which matter, like truth matters, but is that truth starting to capture the essence of who we are? Is it sinking into our souls? Is it doing anything in our hearts so that we can step into the fray and weep with those who weep and celebrate with those who celebrate and not get caught up in the polarization of a culture that's so full of venom and hatred? And can we be the kind of Christians that can actually bring the presence of Jesus to the world? And the way that we're gonna approach that today and next week is by going to a part of the Bible It's not just the prayer book of the church. It is that. And it's not just the hymn book of the church. It is that. But more than that, the book of Psalms is this beautiful example of how the truth of who God is and the grace of Jesus in the gospel is not just data or technology to fill your heads or strengthen your arms, but how it's calling you to open the depths of who you are to be changed from the inside out as a follower of Jesus. The Psalms help bring soul to the church. And I just think there's never been a time in the history of America where we are in such a great need for having soulful men and women. Soulful men and women. Men and women that have savored the taste of Jesus and men and women that know what to weep over and know what to celebrate over and men and women that are living lives of courage and bringing peaceful presence to the people that are our neighbors and coworkers and friends and those that are in our communities. We wanna be people that have soul. 
And it's a tragedy that if you compared much of what passes for Christianity and discipleship in our country, if you compared it to food, it would just be so bland. There's nothing bland about Jesus. Jesus is rich. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is incredible. And the church is called, the church is called to be a manifestation of the presence of Jesus in the world in which we live in the way that we engage, in the way that we serve, in the way that we walk out our jobs and our callings and our assignments, in the way that we love our neighbors. So today, with that in mind, we're gonna go to the Psalms, which is the prayer book of the church, and which helps us remember that what Jesus wants to do is not just technology, it's not just data, but it's a core inside-out transformation of who we are. And we're gonna walk through the 42nd Psalm together today. So if you got a Bible, find the 42nd Psalm, If you're looking for it, the book of Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible, so you can pretty much turn to the middle of the Bible and you'll probably hit the Psalms. And the 42nd Psalm is this beautiful picture of what a soulful relationship with Jesus really looks like. A relationship that includes your head, it includes your strength, but it's not just your head and your strength, it's also the core of who you are as an image bearer of God. I'm gonna read it to you and then we're gonna walk through four realities about our souls today. So Psalm 42, starting in verse one, here's what he says. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Look at verse five. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down. And therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And his night his song is with me, a prayer to God, to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And as with deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, what we just read is so different than Christian discipleship just being data, technique, and information. It's so different than just memorizing a verse and letting that verse simply be crammed into your supercomputer up here and not actually sinking down into the essence of who you are. What we read is way different than that. This is a snapshot of what it means to be a follower of God because of the grace of God in Jesus, whose head and heart are being connected in worship and in honesty before the living God. So I want to give you four things about your soul that you need to remember. Four things about my soul that I need to remember. First of all, number one, your soul is thirsty. Your soul is thirsty. 
Look how he opens up this prayer, this song. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So twice in these verses, he says, my soul is thirsty. And he uses a picture or a metaphor or poetry to explain that thirst. He says, it's like a deer that's panting for flowing streams. Now, Here's, I think, what came to the mind of many of us as I read that. I think you got a picture, perhaps, of sort of a beautiful, green, lush landscape with a cute deer and a nice flowing stream. And I think that that comes to your mind because of the Thomas Kincaiding of our Christian view of thirst. And if you don't know who Thomas Kincaid is, it's probably because you've not been into a local Christian bookstore. So... So I have a picture to show you how I think most people read this verse. Okay, and this is a, this is a Thomas Kincaid painting. If this is in your living room, I apologize for everything I'm about to say. I still love you. We just disagree on art. But I think for many people, they think that the Christian experience of thirst, or if we could even broaden it out, the human experience of thirst in your soul looks a lot like this. There's a rainbow, there's a beautiful deer, there's green grass, there's Bambi and Thumper, and the lighting is perfect, and the tree is flowing in the wind, and way far away there might be thunderclouds, but right here, the sun is shining. Okay, and, and I think like, I think we can read a verse like this, and I think what we can tend to do is, because of the lack of depth in so much of our discipleship, and can I just say, because of the lack of honesty about what it means to be a human, I think what we can do is we can sort of connect with this image that I just showed you and think that that's the experience of thirst more than Thomas Kincaid's actual life. Because he painted really sentimental, cute pictures, but he was a desperate man. Thomas Kincaid once, uh, this is a true story, you can't make this stuff up. He got drunk at a Siegfried and Roy show in Vegas and I don't know why, but he was yelling out codpiece repeatedly. Like, that's a disturbed man, right? It's, it's disturbing to go to Siegfried and Roy. It's disturbing to yell out that term, and it's disturbing to get drunk in Vegas in that crowd. And, and I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm actually trying to say that this is a guy that was desperate. Eventually, in 2012, his life ended because of a severe over-intoxication through alcohol and Valium. So can we just step into just the tension there for just a second? Here's a guy who's painting Christian art that's informing our view of thirst, our view of the soul. It's cutesy, it's sentimental, it's saccharine. And at the same time he's painting these pictures, there's a divide between his paintings and just how desperate the longing of his soul really is to find living water. I just want to say the Christian soul and the human soul is a lot more like Thomas Kincaid's life than it is like his paintings. What this psalmist is saying here is not a cute deer in a beautiful valley. What he's talking about is more like a deer in the area that he would have lived in that was desert. A deer who's starving, a deer who's dehydrated, a deer who has to find a mountain stream or it will die, a deer whose tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth. And what the Bible would say is that's the state of our soul. That's the state of our soul as human beings. We are thirsty beings. 
And one of the big messages throughout the entire Bible is that what we do is we take the thirst of our soul and we try to dig wells to satisfy that thirst. We dig good wells in society and we dig bad wells in society. And the good wells are things like marriage and family and career and civic duty and education and art and trying to find good diversions for the thirst of our soul like music and poetry and walking outside. And we dig these holes, right? We dig these wells and we try to drink of them. And what Jeremiah said is we keep, we keep carving out our wells and they keep they keep tricking us by offering satisfaction and they don't really get to the deeper thirst of our soul. Some of us dig wells that society would say are not helpful, like um, hookups and breakups and drugs and the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of food. The reality is all human beings are thirsty creatures. And the reason we're so thirsty and the reason none of these things satisfy, the reason that that is, is summed up by St. Augustine when he said this, He said, I believe that the soul's proper abode, to put it that way, and its homeland is God himself by which it has been created. Like that's a profound statement. Here's what he's saying. Your soul's proper home, the homeland of your soul is to be in relationship, in communion with the living God. Now that just fits in with the rest of the Bible. You were created to run on God, to drink of God as the headwaters of meaning, joy, and delight. And because of sin, we were cut off from the headwaters. And even through the work of Jesus, if you've trusted Christ and you've been given a new heart, it's still really difficult to drink of those headwaters as human beings. So your soul is not only thirsty, it's according to to Augustine, it's homeless without God. That's the restlessness we feel. That's the desire to stay busy. That's why we don't want to look inside. That's why quiet is terrifying for most of us. Because when you look inside, what do you see? Thirst and longing and loneliness and fear and drivenness and compulsions. And the reason all those things are there is because there's something missing. And that's the abode of the soul to live and to move in God who doesn't just create life. He is life. So I want us to be the kind of people that start by recognizing we're so thirsty. We're so thirsty. We're desperately thirsty. And it's not a cutesy version of a thirsty deer. It's a desperate version of a thirsty deer. Something we need. This leads us to the second thing he says about our soul. Not only is it thirsty, but your soul and my soul is relational. It's relational. You have a thirsty soul and you have a relational soul. Now, where do we get that? Is that actually in this text? I think it really is. Look at verse three. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember as he does what? As I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Here's what you're going to find if you study the soul in scripture. The soul is relational and demands, hear me, it demands an expression from self to other, from self to other. And what the psalmist is doing in this prayer or in this song or in this journal, whatever you want to call it, what the psalmist is doing is he's pouring out his soul and that's a picture of just how relational the human soul is. 
The human soul wasn't created to be bottled up in isolation or in autonomy or in loneliness. The human soul was created in the image of God to be relational so that it would be poured out in community. Now, this wouldn't be how we are as people if we were made in the image of a different kind of God. So the other versions of God that aren't true versions of God are versions of solitary gods, Solitary gods, a God that lived in isolation in eternity past, a God that was alone. Well, the Christian, the Christian vision of God that I believe with all my heart, I'm banking all my life on it being real, the Christian version of God is not a solitary God. He's one, but he's always existed as three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this one God who is three in eternity past existed in depth of relationship. And though God was immaterial, Christ hadn't yet taken on flesh. God is spirit. What you see in God is that there's a pouring out. The Father pours out on the Son and the Son pours out on the Father and the Spirit pours out on the Son and the Son pours out on the Spirit. That's communion. That's relationship. That's delight in one another. And you as a human being, you weren't created in the image of this lonely, isolated God. You were created in the image of this relational God. Therefore, therefore, in the Bible, what you see again and again, followers of God are invited to pour out their souls. We pour out our souls to God in prayer, in song, in worship. We pour out our souls to one another in conversation, in communion, in repentance. We, we are called to pour out our souls in some really happy ways like praise and shouting and laughing. And we're called to pour out our souls in some really difficult ways like mourning and grief and lamentation. And the reason this is, is because a soul that's bottled up in self is a soul that's going to be isolated and anemic and desperate because your soul was made to be expressed. You were created to pour out your soul. And this psalmist in this text is pouring out his soul to God and he's pouring out his soul to the people of God. For many of us, the reason there's such a lack of depth in our Christian journey, it's because we bought into the lie that it's just me and Jesus. We don't need people. We don't need community. We don't need vulnerability. We don't need honesty. We can do it on our own. We can be self-made men and women that pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And the message of the gospel is, no, actually, you're a relational being with a relational soul that desperately needs to learn, to learn the spiritual disciplines of being poured out so that you can experience life and renewal. Now, I think the tragedy in this as well is that often instead of pouring out our souls to God, we just pray the prayers that we think we're supposed to pray. Can, can we just take a quick, honest poll? How many people, if you looked back at the last six months of your life with God, your prayer life, instead of being a pouring out of, was, of what was actually inside of you, like this guy does, because he's able to pour out, hey, I think you've forgotten me, where are you? How many people would say, if you look back on the six, last six months of prayer, instead of pouring out your soul to God and telling him what's actually there, we've told him what we think should have been there. Can we just be honest? Like anybody else? We prayed the religious prayers. We, we prop up the image of what we think a Christian's supposed to look like in community. And we even bring that image into God who actually searches the innermost depths of your soul and is not tricked by any of your games. We're like, hey, God, uh, here's what I'm supposed to say. 
And all the while, the invitation of God is actually, I don't want the prayers from you that you think you should pray. I want the prayers from you that are the actual pouring out of what's inside of you. Your thirst, your longing, your grief, your sorrow, your joy, your fears, like what's really going on inside of you. When you bring that to God in a pouring out, that's communion. When you bring that to another friend, to a wife, to a husband, to your community, that's communion. We were made as relational beings. So first of all, you and I have souls. You're not just a supercomputer on a neck, right? you, You have a soul and you have a thirsty soul, very thirsty. It's needy. It's desperate. It's dehydrated. It was created to drink of God and it is relational, It's created for communion with God and communion with people. This leads us to the third thing. This psalmist points out that our souls need to be interrogated. They need to be interrogated. Um, Maybe not waterboarded, but definitely interrogated. Uh, In fact, if you're going to be sane in the world in which we live, in a chaotic, insane world, if you're going to be sane, you actually have to learn to talk to your soul. It's the counterintuitive reality of Scripture. If you're going to be sane in a crazy world, you actually have to learn to have a relationship with your soul and ask it some really important questions. Look what happens in verse five. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Like, <laughs> when's the last time you interrogated your soul like that? Soul, what's really going on here? What's actually happening inside of you? What are you actually longing for? What are you actually desiring? What are you actually afraid of? What are you actually experiencing? He says, soul, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls and your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Here's what's happening. He's saying your soul actually has some depths inside of it that you need to plumb if you're gonna be a disciple who has a head and a heart that are connected. Your soul has some depths that need to be explored and plumbed. And the reason it's so hard to do that is because many of us don't understand or speak the language that our souls speak. We're very good at speaking the language of reason and logic and data and facts. But throughout Christian history, not only throughout the overwhelming evidence in scripture, but theologians like Augustine and Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin, they've pointed out that the language that the soul speaks is not the language of data and rational thinking. The language of the soul is the language of feeling and desire. It's the language of longing. It's the language of the emotional life of the heart. Now, even as I say that, a lot of good evangelicals in the room are getting so nervous. They're like, oh man, I knew he was a heretic. You can't have that many pastors with beards in this church not be a cult, (laughs) right? You can't have such a diverse crowd and them not totally be a progressive sellout church. Now he's talking about getting in touch with their emotions. Oh my gosh, let's leave. Can I just pause here for a second and say, is it possible, is it possible that God gave you the full spectrum of human emotions and Jesus, not only as the author of them, but as the redeemer of them wants to paint with the full emotional palette in your life? Like, isn't it possible that the only, that more than just the only emotion that evangelicals tend to think is okay, which is like happiness, 
isn't it possible that since God created more emotions than just happiness, that maybe, just maybe, Jesus wants to meet you in your emotional life in such a way that you don't just paint with one spectrum of the color palette, but where you paint with all of them and know what is it that your soul is longing for and feeling as an invitation from God to meet with Jesus? Many of us think, man, if you feel anything outside of happiness, you've got to ignore that, you've got to stuff that, you've got to avoid that, you've got to not look at that. And I think what the psalmist is doing here is he's interrogating his soul, not because he's wanting to be a worshiper of his emotions, but because it's the desires and emotions of your heart that lead you to deeper and deeper relationship with God because they're all invitations. God wants to meet you in loneliness. God wants to meet you in anger. God wants to meet you in sorrow. Jesus puts it so well. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. Some of you are missing out on so much gospel comfort because you're so terrified of mourning. You're terrified of looking at those parts of your life that are sad and really feeling it and really asking your soul the hard question. Why are you cast down on my soul? You're missing out on so much comfort, so much interaction with God, the Holy Spirit, when you only think that happiness is the appropriate response as a follower of Jesus. We want to be people that interrogate our souls and learn to speak the language of our soul, which is the language of desire and feeling. Um, In his great book, The Voice of the Heart, Chip Dodd talks about loneliness like this. See if this fits into your grid for the emotional life of a Christian. Here's what he says. Loneliness renders us vulnerable to our hunger for emotional and spiritual fulfillment, thus exposing to us all relationship needs. But in a world that screams negatively about dependency and that glorifies self-sufficiency, loneliness is the work, is what we work the hardest to avoid. And the irony is that the more we work to avoid it, the more it occurs. And the more we work to hide it, the more we miss out on life. The psalmist is saying, hey, soul, like, what's going on with you? Wouldn't it be crazy? Wouldn't it be crazy if as followers of Jesus, instead of shallowly thinking that you were just supercomputers on necks, wouldn't it be crazy if you realized that your intellect matters, truth matters, but also the deep desires of your soul matter, and they're not to be worshiped like our culture worships them. It's not like, hey, soul, what do you want? Oh, that's ultimate truth. Sometimes your soul desires things that are not going to be helpful for you. But to know that your soul is a desiring part of you and a feeling part of you and that you need to interrogate it. And then in response to that interrogation, you need to do the fourth thing. And this is where we're going to end. You have a soul, it's thirsty. You have a soul, it's relational. It can't just be you bottling it up. You need to pour it out to God and pour it out in community. You have a soul that needs to be interrogated. And finally, after you interrogate your soul, you need to remind your soul of its hope and anchor. It's not worshiping your feelings or your desires. It's knowing what they are and knowing how they're invitations to a deeper understanding of the gospel, not just intellectually, but from the core of your being. Here's what he says. Look at this together. It's my favorite part of this whole passage. Verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. Verse nine, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Okay, this is fascinating because here's what's happening. At the beginning of this little passage, he's reminding his soul of what? Steadfast love. In fact, can we just say it out loud so you remember? Just say steadfast love. Like he kicks off the end of this passage by saying, hey, remember the steadfast love of the Lord that he commands over me. And then he moves from the steadfast love and that's like, that's like the bread. And then part of the middle of the sandwich is my adversaries are taunting me and I'm wondering where the heck God is. And it feels like God's forgotten me and it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And then he bookends on the other side, what? Eternal hope. So here's what you have in this weird Christian sandwich, right? It's like steadfast love at the beginning, eternal hope in the end, and in the middle, sometimes feeling like, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Do you love me? Are my adversaries right? Does sin get the last word on me? Does death get the last word on me? Are you even aware that I'm here and that I'm feeling all these things? Friends, this is so profound. Your soul, it needs to be interrogated, but it also needs to be taught. And what it needs to be taught is that the steadfast love of God and the eternal hope of God, the steadfast love and the eternal hope are not just abstract doctrines that you fill into your supercomputer. They're actually living water that you get to drink in your thirsty soul. What do I mean by this? Well, what what is he talking about with steadfast love? Well, that's covenantal love. That's love that becomes an anchor for a soul that wants to get blown around by elections or by economies or by relationships. The anchor of your soul is the steadfast love of God. What is his steadfast love? Well, it's a lot of things. It's you were foreloved before the creation of the world. That's not just a doctrine. That's something that can give your soul the ability to sing. You were foreloved before the creation of the world. God set his love on you. You were chosen. You were justified because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. You were adopted because of the perfect track record and resurrection of Jesus. You were ransomed from death and from sin by the blood of Jesus. You were redeemed. You were sanctified. You were sealed with God, the Holy Spirit. Like so many of us wonder, Does God even love me? Does anybody even love me? Is there any meaning of this life? And and here's what the gospel says. It's that the steadfast love of God is not just abstract truth that just penetrates your head so that you can win theology quizzes. The steadfast love of God is God's relational love that's 100% yours because of the perfect life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He set his love on you. When my soul is depressed, when my soul is like, have you forgotten me? Do you even care about what's going on in my life? Do you even care that it's so hard to be a human being? I need to not just interrogate that soul. I need to be able to say to my soul, hey, here's doctrinal reality about the gospel that's actually food for a soul that's hungry. 
the love of God in Christ is baffling. It's breathtaking. It's stimulating. It's, it's satisfying that he knows you. He chooses you. He foreloved you. He redeemed you. He rescued you. He justified you. Steadfast love. Can't forget you. And, and then the eternal hope, what is that? Well, it, it's really interesting because in this whole song or in this whole poem that this guy's writing, what you see again and again is the theme of his soul feeling forgotten, abandoned, forsaken. And he ends this whole thing with eternal hope, eternal hope. Now, here's why he does this. He does this because as a follower of Jesus, you're often going to feel forgotten and abandoned. You're often going to feel like death and sin is going to get the last word on you. And what your soul needs is the constant reminder that the only son of God that was ever forsaken was Jesus so that you would never be forsaken. Some of you are thinking, Jesus was forsaken? Yeah. Jesus willingly came to take on our sin on the cross. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that? Well, that was the father and the son working together to deal with the problem of sin by Jesus taking our sin on him and the father turning his back on Jesus. And because three days later, Jesus was vindicated in the resurrection. Here's what you can know. The only son of God that's ever been forsaken was Jesus. And he was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. You can't be forsaken as a follower of God, as a follower of Jesus, as one who's put your faith in Jesus. You can't be erased from his hands and from his heart. It can't happen. My soul needs that anchor. It needs that eternal hope. Like what's the hope that I can do really well tomorrow or that next Wednesday I'll do better than last Wednesday or that the that the presidential election is going to get better and better or that we're going to solve the divisions of our country and our own ingenuity. No, my eternal hope is really solid and secure. It's that there was one who was forsaken so that I could never be forsaken. And his name is Jesus. Scripture says, can a nursing mom forget her, her baby? And the answer is sad. It's like, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. It's like the fiercest human love that we can know. Sometimes it's not enough. But can he forget you? Never. You're written on his hands. You're written on his heart. Like he overbought us with the price of his own blood. You can't be erased. You can't be forgotten. And what the soul needs so that we can have peace, so that we can step into a chaotic world and bring the presence of Jesus as the priest of God. Because if you're a Christian, guess what? You're a kingdom of priests. What are priests supposed to bring with them? Peace. How do we bring peace with us in a chaotic world? Well, it's by being rooted and grounded in the steadfast love and the eternal hope of the gospel that's not just real in your head, but it's real in your heart. 